Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Daphne, and I will be reading the Cape Cod Times for you today. It is Thursday, November the 9th, and as I am reading, it is raining. So we'll start with the weather. Today, high of 54, rain in the morning, otherwise cloudy. Tonight, low of 41, low clouds breaking. Friday, high of 54, low of 37, some sun. Saturday, plenty of sunshine, high of 50, low of 33. Sunday, high of 44, low of 32, partly sunny and chilly. And Monday, sunny to partly cloudy, high of 47, low of 34. And for those of us who are still getting used to changing our clocks, today the sun rose at 622 and set at 427. We had Ten, we will have 10 hours and 5 minutes of sunlight today. And on to the lottery. Starting with the numbers game, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, November the 8th, the midday drawing, numbers were 2, 5, 3, 3. Again, midday drawing, 2, 5, 3, 3. And the evening drawing... The numbers were 4073. Again, for numbers game, evening drawing yesterday's 4073. For mass cash drawn yesterday, November the 8th, the numbers are 13, 17, 19, 24, 26. Again, for mass cash, the numbers are 13, 17, 19, 24, and 26. For Powerball, drawn yesterday as well, the numbers are 14, 21, 33, 39, 62, and the Powerball is 20. Again, for Powerball drawn yesterday, the numbers are 14, 21, 33, 39, 62, and the Powerball is 20. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, November the 7th, the numbers are 3, 11, 33, 42, 52, and the Mega Ball is 20. Again, for Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 3, 11, 33, 44, 42, excuse me, 42, 52, and the Mega Ball is 20. <clears throat> For the Mega Bucks doubler drawn yesterday, Wednesday, November the 8th, the numbers are 4, 11, 26, 38, 46, 49, with the doubler of 1. Again, Mega Bucks doubler drawn yesterday, Wednesday the 8th, the numbers are 4, 11, 26, 38, 46, 49. 
and the doubler is one. And finally, for Lucky for Life, <clears throat> drawn yesterday, Wednesday, November the 8th, the numbers are 11, 25, 27, 42, 45, with a lucky ball of 12. Again, Lucky for Life, the numbers are 11, 25, 27, 42, 45, with a lucky ball of 12. And now for the news. To the front page of the Cape Cod Times, there is a picture with the title, Great Tribute, and the photograph caption is, Massachusetts State Police Honor Guard present the colors in front of a newly unveiled memorial to Trooper Ellen Engelhart during a morning ceremony on Wednesday at the State Police Barracks in South Yarmouth. Engelhart died in 2011 after being struck by a vehicle while on duty in 2003 in Wareham. And then there's a picture beneath that titled, Laura Tiedemann heads to the podium to speak during the ceremony for her mother. To the article, Cape Honors Trooper Engelhart with Monument. And this is reported by George Costinas, special to the Cape Cod Times. Trooper Ellen E. Engelhart was honored with a dedication ceremony Wednesday, unveiling a monument in her memory on the small green in front of the Massachusetts State Police Barracks on Route 28. It is a black triangular monument about four feet high, bearing an engraved likeness of her with an inscription below which reads, Trooper Ellen E. Engelhart, who served the Commonwealth of Massachusetts from 1981 to 2003, killed in the line of duty June 1, 2011. It was something we needed to do, said Trooper Chris Johnson, who served as the master of ceremonies for the dedication. We are proud to dedicate this to her 12 years, dedicate this to her 12 years after her passing. On July 26, 20, 2003, a speeding red Volvo driven by 18-year-old William P. Sen of Wayland slammed into the back of Engelhart's cruiser on the Route 25 breakdown lane in Wareham, where she was investigating a prior accident. Sen was reportedly driving nearly 100 miles per hour at the time. Engelhart, then 50, suffered massive head trauma from which she never recovered. She died of her injuries on June the 1st, 2011. Engelhart served as a Massachusetts state trooper for nearly 23 years. She was a graduate of the department's 61st recruit training troop in 1981. About 100 people, including family members, state police staff members, and officers of other police departments and fire departments on Cape Cod, and assorted citizens, attended the dedication. Laura Tiedemann, Engelhardt's daughter, thanked everyone responsible for the dedication ceremony for, quote, this great tribute to my mother as a state trooper. And she asked people to remember other officers who were lost in the line of duty. Massachusetts State Police Interim Colonel 
John E. Maughan, Jr., said Engelhart was a trooper who represented the dedication and esprit de corps of her profession and was a hard worker who led by kindness and example. He said she was a person you didn't want to disappoint. She was a person you wanted to live up to and make her proud. Mon called her a trailblazer for future female officers and for all officers in general. It was a beautiful, crisp, sunny, and blustery autumn day for the dedication. A stiff breeze kicked up to make the flags at the ceremony wave briskly. The state, Massachusetts State Police drums and pipes struck up a crescendo on the second verse of Amazing Grace at the end of the ceremony. The wind again picked up with a hearty gust. The ceremony, which lasted about 35 minutes, came to a close with a solemn rendition of taps. More news from the front page of the Cape Cod Times for elections 2023. The title is Recount Eyed for Barnstable Precinct 9, reported by Heather McCarran. In a classic neck-and-neck outcome, the race for the Precinct 9 seat on the Barnstable Town Council brought the two newcomer candidates to the finish line with almost exactly the same number of votes. Now, a recount may be in the offing. Retired social work and guidance counselor Charlie Bloom ended Election Day on Tuesday with 100 votes, putting him in the council seat representing his district. Health Ministry Incorporated founder and CEO Michael Messinas was just a hair's breadth behind with 99 votes. Quote, yes, we are definitely recounting the votes, said Messinas by email just past midnight on Wednesday morning, following nearly a month of hard campaigning. Town clerk Ann Quirk said Messinas approached her Tuesday night after the unofficial results were announced quote, and requested information for a recount. In order for a recount to be considered, she said, Messinas must collect a minimum of 10 signatures from registered voters in Precinct 9. Messinas on Wednesday morning said he'd already obtained and signed the recount petition himself as of 9.15 a.m. Quirk said nothing will be scheduled, quote, until it comes back to me with the 10 required signatures from people within the precinct and I've certified them, close quote. It has to be done within 10 days, she explained. Then I have to schedule the recount. She says she'll have to give a three-day notice. A recount, if scheduled, will take place at the town hall with a police officer present, Quirk said. She expects fellow town clerks on Cape will offer help, which will save on associated costs. Bloom, who mounted his first-ever political campaign, said Wednesday afternoon he anticipated a recount would be pursued after seeing the closeness of the race. Quote, it's understandable, given such a close race, he said. In all, 202 ballots were cast for the council seat in Precinct 9, according to the official election results. Three of them were blanks. Quirk says she's seen close votes before, but this tally was easily the closest. Quote, the closest that I've done a recount for before was a five-vote difference, she said. The recount did not result, that recount did not result in overturning the outcome, though. 
while vote-by-mail or absentee ballots may on occasion have erased or crossed out mistakes that could initially have been misinterpreted, Quirk said the mechanized vote tabulators used at the polls are really accurate. Still, quote, Quirk said, quote, when you're that close, a recount should be done, close quote. Bloom and Messinas are vying to take over the council seat previously held by Tracy Shaughnessy, who did not seek re-election. A second article about the elections, Crow Tops Votes for Barnstable Town Council, and this is reported by Heather McCarran and Steve Heslip. And there are two photographs accompanying this article. The first one has Stephen Smith and his wife, Roberta, arrive in style for the weather, avoiding a steady rain to cast their ballots per Precinct 13 at the Hyannis Youth and Community Center on Election Day for the towns, uh, town of Barnstable, and they are together holding an umbrella in the rain. And a second photograph beneath that is captioned, Mike Dumanian and his wife Jessie share a booth as they had Precinct 9 to themselves, casting their ballots at the Hyannis Youth and Community Center for the town of Barnstable. <clears throat> to the article, six new councillors are joining the town's top governing board following Tuesday's town election, according to official results released Wednesday afternoon. All 13 town council members were up for election. Six of them faced challengers in their precincts, with four of them retaining their seats and two losing their bids for re-election. Who's on the council now? Here's what the council looks like post-election, listed Precinct 1-13, 1 through 13. Precinct 1, incumbent Gordon Starr. Precinct 2, Kristen Turkelson. Precinct 3, incumbent Betty Ludke. Precinct 4, Craig Tamish, Precinct 5, John Crow, Precinct 6, Incumbent Paul Neary, Precinct 7, Seth Burdict, Precinct 8, Incumbent Jeffrey Mendez, Precinct 9, Charles Bloom, Precinct 10, Incumbent Matthew Levesque, Precinct 11, Incumbent Christine Clark, Precinct 12, Incumbent Paula Stepp, and Precinct 13, Felicia Penn. While poll workers described a slow pace of voting during the morning and afternoon on Tuesday, by around 5 p.m., town clerk Ann Quirk reported a little more than 14% of the town's voters had turned out. That number, she said, quote, is higher than normal for our municipal nonpartisan election, which is a good thing, close quote. By the time the voting was done, 18.6% of the town's 36,178 registered voters, a total of 6,738, had visited their polling stations to cast ballot. Quirk attributed the turnout to voters having a number of choices to make between opposed incumbents and newcomers. Quote, having contests really makes a difference, she said. A look at the votes. There were contests for town council in precincts 1, 2, 5, 6, 11, and 12, in addition to a contest between two newcomers for the Precinct 9 seat. 
The Precinct 9 race produced the closest results, with Charlie Bloom earning 100 votes and Michael Macinas pulling in 99. The seat was previously held by Tracy Shaughnessy, who did not seek re-election. On Wednesday, Messinas began circulation, circulating a petition to seek a recount. Three incumbents went unchallenged and were returned to office, Betty Lidke, Precinct 3, Jeffrey Mendes, Precinct 8, and Matthew Levesque, Precinct 10. Three newcomers were also unchallenged as they put in bids for seats left vacant by councillors, either choosing not to seek re-election or who termed out. In Precinct 4, Craig Tamash takes over from Nicolas Atsalis, while Seth Burdick takes over from Jessica Rapp Grassetti in Precinct 7. Felicia Penn will represent Precinct 13, taking over from Jennifer Callum. Unseated from the council were incumbents Eric Steinhilber in Precinct 2 and Paul Cusack in Precinct 5. Steinhilber, with 312 votes, was bested by Kristen Turkelson, who brought in 540 votes. Cusack lost his bid for election with 410 votes to challenger John Crow's 801. Crow was the council election's top vote-getter. Quote, the 2023 council election was about our community and its future. I commend everyone who ran for their energy and efforts to spotlight the critical issues ahead, Crow said in an email Wednesday morning. Quote, people across Barnstable sent a clear message. They want to be heard and they want responsiveness, he said. When I look at the new council and the six first-time councillors, I'm optimistic, Crow said. The new councillors have a great combination of deep experience with local issues and fresh ideas. I'm anxious to get to work with the entire council to serve the whole community in an open and transparent way. In the other council races, incumbent Gordon Starr in Precinct 1 keeps his seat with 528 votes to challenger Paul Gage's 229. In Precinct 6, incumbent Paul Neary brought in 337 votes. He was challenged by write-in candidate Paul Phelan, who earned 190 write-in votes. For Precinct 11, incumbent Christine Clark handily kept her seat with 545 votes to challenger Toby Leary's 416. And in Precinct 12, Incumbent Paula Schnepp collected 339 votes to keep her seat, while her challenger, Kyle Condino, brought in 262 votes. Also appearing on the ballot were postings for the Barnstable School Committee, but with no contests. Three candidates were on the ballot. Current Chairman Michael Judge and Vice Chairman Kathleen Bent were re-elected. They will be joined by Jennifer Collum, who finishes serving as a counselor for Precinct 13 out of, after terming out of that position. Two positions on the Housing Authority were also listed on the ballot, one of, whom, one of which had no official candidates. Incumbent Deborah Converse, who presently serves as the treasurer, was re-elected with 5,098 votes. Three write-in candidates earned votes for the second seat on the Housing Authority, with Matthew Lehman winning the seat after collecting 111 write-in votes. 
Michael Daly received 78 write-in votes, and Megan Mort earned 40. And our final art article from the front page, 23, 23 elections bring Democrats gains around the U.S., reported by Carissa Waddick and Ken Tran for USA Today. Today's, excuse me, Tuesday's off-year elections offered a wide glimpse into the minds of elections ahead of the consequential 2024 elections, with major bellwether elections for key issues such as abortion rights and how Republicans and Democrats will fare on the national stage next year. Democrats saw major victories in red states, as Ohio voters approved an amendment enshrining abortion rights into the state's constitution and Democratic incumbent Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear secured re-election. Here are the three biggest takeaways from last night's prelude of the 2024 elections. Um, Abortion rights advocates saw a massive victory Tuesday night after Ohio voters approved a ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. The measure, called Issue 1 on the ballot, guarantees abortion access up until the point of viability, typically around 24 weeks gestation. Abortion is still permitted afterwards in cases to save the life or protect the health of the pregnant patient. The efforts to protect abortion rights in the Buckeye garnered significant attention after Ohio votes rejected voters rejected a Republican-backed proposal in August that would have made it more difficult to alter the state's constitution. That proposal, which would have raised the threshold to amending the constitution from 50 percent to 60 percent, was brought forth in advance of the abortion vote in a bid to restrict abortion rights. But voters soundly rejected the measure, foreshadowing Tuesday night's win for supporters of abortion rights. Activists hope the victory is a positive sign for similar 2024 ballot measures to strengthen abortion access slated in more left-leaning states. Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear fended off a challenge Tuesday from Trump-backed opponent Daniel Cameron, winning praise from Democrats who view his victory in the ruby-red state as a potential proxy for the 2024 presidential election. Since 2003, Kentucky's gubernatorial races have been a constant bellwether for presidential elections, and Democrats are hoping the trend will hold in 2024. Bashir, who is among the most popular governors in the country, leaned heavily into key Democratic issues during the campaign, including abortion rights and Biden's achievements on jobs and infrastructure. Described by his Republican opponent as a nice enough guy, Bashir's popularity has also been attributed to his down-to-earth temperament, a characteristic voters similarly ascribed to Biden in the 2020 presidential election. Meanwhile, some Republican leaders warned that Cameron's loss could be another sign of Trump's weaknesses with voters. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who is challenging Trump in the 2024 primary race, called the defeat another loss for Trump. Mississippi's incumbent Republican Governor Tate Reeves decisively beat challenger Brandon Presley, 
striking Democratic hopes of an upset in the deep red southern state. In the run-up to the election, Reeves' smaller-than-normal polling lead and an overturned Jim Crow-era law led many Democrats to view the state as a potential new battleground. Presley, a distant relative of Elvis Presley, who serves as a member of the Mississippi Public Service Commission, ran his campaign in a similar fashion to Democrats in the Georgia races, focusing on economic issues like expanding Medicaid and steering clear of divisive social issues, including abortion. He also sought to mobilize the state's large black population after voters in 2020 approved a measure believed to increase the power of black voters across the state. Yusuf Salam will be a member of the New York City Council. Salam, one of the, quote, Central Park Five, who was exonerated for a 1989 attack on a jogger, won election Tuesday without opposition. He easily won a Democratic primary earlier this year. Quote, I am really the ambassador for everyone's pain, Salam told the Associated Press in an interview. In many ways, I went through that for our people so I can now lead them. DNA evidence exonerated Salam and the other co-defendants. A suburban Minneapolis town became what is believed to be the first in the U.S. to elect a Somali-American mayor when 27-year-old Nadia Mohammed was chosen to lead St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Quote, this is a milestone. This is not the destination, Mohammed told supporters after the results came in Tuesday. Quote, as a mayor, I want to ensure people see themselves reflected in our policies, close quote. Mohammed won handedly over retired banker Dale A. Anderson, the Minneapolis Star Tribune reporter. She had served on the city council since she was elected at age 23 in 2019. And for our cuteness quotient for today's Cape Cod Times, there is a picture on page two of a dog getting a big hug and kiss, and the caption is, Dove, a service dog in training, gets a little love from Dennis Yarmouth assistant field hockey coach Mary Copobianco during halftime of the Monday March match with Danvers. And this is a very, very cute dog. It's a golden retriever. From page two, <clears throat> Certain $2 bills could be worth up to $4,500, reported by Doc Llewellyn for USA Today. U.S. currency auctions estimates that uncirculated $2 bills from 1890 could sell for up to $4,500, and uncirculated bills from nearly every year between 1862 and 1917 for at least $1,000. The auction site reports that collectors are offering these rates depending on factors such as printing method and location. Newer bills could also have significant value, as a $2 bill printed in 2003 recently sold at an auction for $2,400. This particular bill had a very low serial number for the 2003 series and was sold through Heritage Auction, the largest numismatic auction house in the world. It was later resold for $4,000, but Heritage estimates it could now be purchased for $6,000. In 2003, 
If you possess an uncirculated $1,892 bill with a red seal, it is now valued at $4,500. Two dollar bills with red seals can sell for $300 to $2,500, while those with brown or blue seals may fetch hundreds. The two dollar bill has a negative reputation due to superstitions and its association with illegal activities like voter bribery. bribery. The U.S. Treasury made an attempt to popularize the bill in the early 20th century, but it turned out to be a failure. As a result, the government stopped issuing new twos for a period of time. The bill was reintroduced in 1976 as the United States approached its bicentennial and is still in circulation today. The front of the current version features the face of Thomas Jefferson, the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. On the back, there is a portrait of the signing of that document. The Federal Reserve reported that in 2022, $2 bills in circulation amounted to $1.5 billion, a small fraction of the total $54.1 billion currency circulated that year. In 2017, there were $1.2 billion $2 bills worth $2.4 billion in circulation, according to the U.S. Currency Education Program, making them uncommon, but not rare. And our final article from page two of the Cape Cod Times is entitled, Crews Recalling Robotaxis After Hit and One Crash. General Motors is recalling nearly 1,000 of its driverless cars from roads across the nation on the heels of one of its vehicles inadvertently dragging a pedestrian after a crash in San Francisco, the company said. The recall notice affects the American automaker's cruise autonomous vehicles due to a post-collision response issue that may increase safety risks, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, reports. In an announcement Tuesday, NHTSA officials said the issue can be resolved with a software update. According to the NHTSA report, the RoboTaxi's Collision Detective Subsystem, CDS, detects crashes and, in many cases, will pull over out of traffic after a wreck. In some cases, the vehicle will stop and remain stationary. The response depends on crash circumstances, including other drivers or people involved in the incident, and the location of impact on the vehicle, the NHTSA said. In some instances, a crash can take place, and after impact, the CDS can cause the vehicle to attempt to pull over out of traffic instead of remaining stationary when a pullover is not the desired post-collision response. This issue could occur after a collision with a pedestrian positioned low on the ground in the path of the AV, NHTSA wrote. The NHTSA reported the accident took place October 2nd in San Francisco when a person was struck by a hit-and-run driver and thrown into a nearby lane and hit a second time by a cruise vehicle unable to stop in time. And on to obituaries for today, we have two. The first is for Annette Rose Greenfield, West Yarmouth. Annette Rose Greenfield, Annie, 92, died peacefully on Friday, November 3, 2023, at the Pavilion Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in 
Hyannis, Massachusetts. She was the beloved wife of the late Leo Greenfield and the late Herbert Tushneider. Born in Providence, a daughter of the late Harry and Fanny Solop Morgenstern, she had been living between Cape Cod and Florida for many years. Annie previously co-owned with her husband, Leo, beginning in 1968, three restaurants in Warwick, Rhode Island, The Poor Boy, The Red Kettle, and Fanny's Fireside Inn, and later co-owned with her late husband, Anne and Fran's restaurant on Cape Cod, until retiring in 1990. She was an avid bingo player, eager to play as often as possible. Her social activities also included playing cards and mahjong on a local tournament level with her dear friends and cousins. Annie also enjoyed playing the piano, singing, ballroom dancing, and painting sweatshirts. Devoted mother of Nadine London, who dutifully cared for Annie during her final years, her, hus her husband Robert of Warwick, and Stuart Greenfield and his wife Carol of Cranston. She was also the loving grandmother of Christina and cherished great-grandmother to two, Cooper and Mila. Graveside services will be held at 11 a.m. on Sunday, November the 12th, 2023, in Lincoln Park Cemetery, Warwick, Rhode Island. In lieu of flowers, contributions in her memory may be made to Pavilion Rehab and Nursing Center Music Program, 876 Falmouth Road, Hyannis, Massachusetts, 02601. For online condolences, please visit shalommemorialchapel.com. And our second obituary is for Christopher Blake Solitz, Putnam Valley. It was a crisp, clear, and sunny autumn day that our Chris was called back to his ancestors. Christopher Blake Solis was born in Hyannis, Massachusetts on October the 10th, 1961, the youngest son of Chester Pascual Solis and Barbara Blake Solis. Chris spent his youth in Yonkers and Rybrook, New York, and all his summers on Cape Cod among his Mashpee Wampanoag tribal family. When he wasn't taking care of the grounds at his family business, La Plaza del Sol Motor Lodge, Chris could be found riding his dirt bike around Mashpee Lake, clam digging in Shoestring Bay, and running from Mashpee to Loop Beach in Katuit. The heart of our family, Chris's boisterous, raspy voice was immediately offset by his warm, friendly demeanor that welcomed everyone to his home and his table. His house was the go-to place for Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday parties, graduation ceremonies, and holidays. Chris was all about family, cooking with love, building with precision, artistry, and excellence, and creating tinker and tinkering with an intellect and lifelong curiosity unique only to him. An outdoorsman who was innately talented at building and fixing anything, Chris owned a landscaping business, worked as a carpenter and cabinet maker, as well as a cemetery groundskeeper. A fiercely proud Mashpee Wampanoag, Chris learned native pottery making and ensured his heritage lives on through his son, who has danced at powwow since he was a child. God sent Chris home this fall, but his sweet, generous spirit and an unending kindness will stay with us all. Chris is survived by his wife Kate, his son Christopher, siblings Chester, Fenton, Whitney, and Sidney, 
his nieces, Jacqueline, Allison, Bianca, April, Ariana, and Alex, his nephews, Fenton, Neil, Matthew, and Blake, and his ever-faithful pup, Lily. A non-denominational service will be held on Friday, November 10th, that's today, from 11 to 2 p.m., followed by refreshments at the Putnam Valley Volunteer Ambulance Corps, 218 Oscawana Lake Road, Putnam Valley, New York. A service will also be held on Saturday, November 11th at 1 p.m. at the Old Indian Church Cemetery, 410 Meeting House Road, Mashpee, Massachusetts, followed by refreshments at the Mashpee Wampanoag Government Center, 483 Great Neck Road South, Mashpee, Massachusetts. More Cape election news. This article is entitled, Orleans Voters Okay Hiring Eight Firefighters. And this is reported by Zane Razak for the Cape Cod Times. There are two photographs with this. The first shows Orleans Town Clerk Kelly Darling on the left, working with Constable Kevin Higgins as he starts to feed the mail-in ballots into the counter on Tuesday morning. Election officials said they received about 1,000 mail-in ballots. Orlean voters headed to the polls Tuesday at the town's senior center. Voters were asked to approve spending for eight new firefighters, an aerial ladder truck for the fire department, and staffing and operational expenses for the recreation department. And beneath that is a photograph. Orlean's voters mark their ballots Tuesday morning at the town's senior center for the article. At Tuesday's election, Orleans voters paved the way for the town to hire eight new firefighters, according to unofficial results. Residents overwhelmingly approved all three requests on the ballot to override the tax-limiting Proposition 2.5 law. According to the town, 1,706 voters participated in the election, which represented a 30% turnout. Voters supported funding $925,000 through a Proposition 2.5 override to pay the salary and fringe benefits costs for the eight new firefighters for the fiscal year beginning July the 1st. A remaining $231,000 will be used from free cash to cover equipment and other costs. According to the town, 1,294 94 voters supported the request, while 411 voted no. The town presently has five firefighters per shift. Eight more firefighters would increase that to seven firefighters per shift, meaning that two ambulances or an ambulance and fire engine could be on the road at the same time. Town meeting in October had already supported funding the new firefighters, the operational override passing at the election was the next necessary step. Hiring is planned to begin in January, so the new firefighters can be part of the shift rotation in time for next summer. Voters, 1190 to 510, also approved the second question, authorizing $500,000 through a debt exclusion to pay for an aerial ladder for the fire department. The last question centered on boosting funding for the Recreational Department and was also approved on an 1180 to 519 vote. 
Voters supported allowing the town to assess an additional $168,000 in real estate and personal property taxes to fund staffing and operational expenses for the Recreation Department. The request stems from a study completed by the Edward J. Collins, Jr. Center for Public Management at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, which recommended ways to improve staffing and services within the department. The money will add one-and-a-half full-time equivalent in salaries and benefits to help fund facility youth and maintenance. And town meeting news from Yarmouth. Yarmouth Town Meeting Voters Ease Rules on Accessory Apartments, and this is re- reported by Rashik Tabusum Ujib for the Cape Cod Times. Yarmouth residents were focused on one article at Tuesday's special town meeting, modifying restrictions on accessory apartments. The article passed with a two-thirds majority. For the first time, town meeting was held at the new Dennis Yarmouth Intermediate School in South Yarmouth. The main auditorium, which has the capacity of 850 people, was almost full. An article calling for amendments to a wetlands bylaw was withdrawn, and all other articles were passed without conflict, including approval of $1,233,067 for municipal sewer projects. Changes to the accessory apartments bylaw drew a significant amount of discussion. Before Tuesday's vote to approve changes to the zoning bylaw, accessory apartments were limited to units with family members or affordable units that include specific provisions related to deed restrictions, maximum rental rates, and tenant eligibility requirements. The new bylaw eliminates the restrictions, allowing the property owner to choose their tenants and rental fee. Kathy Williams, Yarmouth Town Planner, told town meeting voters the zoning changes are aimed at creating more year-round, smaller rental units so people working on Cape Cod can live here. Quote, it's also about facilitating people who want to age in place so they might be able to have a caregiver unit on their property and continue to allow family members to stay together, but also allowing some flexibility by having separate spaces, she said. Sharon DeGenero of South Yarmouth, who suffered a head injury, has wanted to build an apartment in her basement for some time. She said the process is confusing and the restriction on what she could charge for rent made it more difficult for her to build the apartment because of the increased cost of living over the last three or four years combined with not having a fixed income. DeGenero wants to build the apartment for an aide, who could work with her 10 hours a week and pay partial rent in exchange. If you're considering the amendments, I am someone that would really benefit from this change, and I'm thankful for the town officials to come up with the changes, she said, before residents approved the bylaw changes. For more information about the articles on the special town meeting warrant, go to https colon slash slash www.yarmouth.com ma dot us slash eighteen eighty slash Yarmouth dash town dash meeting for national news House unsure on plan to avert shutdown 
GOP members consider varying stopgap options, reported by Ken Tran for USA Today. And there are two photographs here. The first on uh, two gentlemen walking down the hallway, uh, presumably in the Senate building or the House building. A clean continuing resolution would almost certainly lose a handful of Republican votes, a dangerous prospect in the lower chamber where the GOP controls the House with a razor-thin majority. To offset these votes, Representative Thomas Massey, Republican from Kentucky, suggested attaching a policy provision amicable to some Democrats and the Senate. And then the photograph before that is captioned, New House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, has given House Republicans three stopgap options to avoid a government shutdown. To the article... House Republicans are racing to pass appropriation bills needed to avert a government shutdown ahead of a looming deadline. But lawmakers have acknowledged that Congress will have to kick the can down the road with another stopgap measure to temporarily keep the governor's, government's doors open. Newly minted House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican Louisiana, offered three options to House Republicans in a closed-door conference meeting Tuesday morning a laddered approach that would fund different aspects of the government up until, dif- up until different deadlines, a clean stop-the-gap measure, referred to as a continuing rev- resolution until mid-January, or negotiating with the Senate in advance on a stop-gap amis- amicable to both chambers. Members left the meeting unsure of the path forward to avert a shutdown and largely deferred to Johnson on how to handle government funding. But there was common agreement that time has once again run out for Congress to pass a long-term funding package. Quote, I think it's just physically impossible that we can get all of the appropriation bills through, all of the conferencing done with the Senate. Representative John Rutherford, Republican from Florida, a member of the House Appropriations Committee, said, Johnson has been avoiding tipping his hand as to how the House will pass a government funding package, but made clear to members on Tuesday morning's closed-door meetings and private conversations that he does not want to see the government shut down. Quote, I've been involved in enough conversations with our new speaker to know that he does not want to shut the government down, and he understands that it's very bad for our country and it's impossible to get out of, so there's no point in getting one to begin with. Republican Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican from Pennsylvania, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican from Pennsylvania, told USA Today. While it's unclear how House Republicans plan to prevent a shutdown, Johnson sought to portray confidence in the lower chamber's ability to fund the government and said he will unveil his plans in short order at a GOP leadership news conference Tuesday. Trust us, we're working through the process in a way that I think the people will be proud of, he added. Congress has to pass 12 separate appropriation bills to fund the government, with each bill targeting specific functions of the government. The the House has passed seven bills, while the Senate passed three in one single package known as a minibus. A shutdown was successfully averted in the waning hours before the deadline in September with a clean continuing resolution that kept government funding at current levels, much to the dismay of more conservative lawmakers 
adamant back then that any funding package could contain cuts. Quote, I don't think a clean continuing resolution is going to be something that a lot of us could say that we could support. Representative Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, member of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, said Monday, already appearing to rule out his vote for a clean stopgap measure. But with nine days left until a shutdown, even hard-right members have begun to recognize that the most likely option to avert a shutdown would be a clean continuing resolution. One House conservative, Representative Andy Oglis, Republican of Tennessee, who is staunchly against clean stopgaps, told USA Today that he would consider supporting one on the floor, even if it didn't have any cuts, but something to take home to the district, such as border security. A clean continuing resolution would almost certainly lose a handful of Republican votes, a dangerous prospect in the lower chamber where the GOP controls the House with a razor-thin majority. To offset those votes, Republican Thomas Massey, Republican from Kentucky, suggested attaching a policy provision amicable to some Democrats and the Senate. But underscoring the uncertainty surrounding any government plan, when asked as to what that policy provision could be, Massey shrugged, I don't know. Other conservative GOP members, with a sizable number coming from the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, are pushing for the novel laddered approach. Such a measure would fund each of the 12 appropriation bills until different deadlines. The laddered stopgap presented behind closed doors would fund four bills until mid-December and the remaining eight bills until mid-January. The proposal has drawn mockery from House Democrats and confusion from other House Republicans who say the laddered approach is too convoluted. Quote, sounds overly complicated, Fitzpatrick said of a laddered proposal. Fitzpatrick added he thinks Congress should keep it simple because, quote, we have to fund the government. More national news. This article is entitled House Censures Tlaib Over Israel-Palestine Remarks, reported by Ken Tran. And there is a photograph accompanying this article captioned Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, speaks during a news conference on May 25th on Capitol Hill in Washington. The House voted to formally censure Tlaib over comments made on the Israel-Hamas war. The House voted Tuesday night to censure the only Palestinian-American in Congress, Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, over her remarks on the Israel-Hamas war. The move to censure Tlaib in a resolution introduced by Representative Rich McCormick, Republican from Georgia, was approved in the House by a vote of 234 to 188. Most House Republicans voted in favor of the measure, along with a handful of House Democrats. Representative Brad Schneider, Democrat from Illinois, who is Jewish and one of the Democrats who voted to censure Tlaib, said the resolution was not perfect in its language or form in a statement, in a statement but said he thought there was no other recourse but to vote to censure her. 
quote, it is the only vehicle available to formally rebuke the dangerous disinformation and aspersions that Representative Tlaib continues to use and defend, he said. House Republicans successfully defeated a Democratic attempt to set aside the resolution in a procedural move known as a motion to table earlier on Tuesday afternoon. Following the motion to to table, Tlaib, surrounded by her fellow progressive colleagues, delivered an impassioned speech on the House floor while holding back tears. Quote, I can't believe I have to say this, but Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, Tlaib said Tuesday afternoon, holding up a framed picture of her grandmother. Just like my grandmother, like all Palestinians, who just wants to live her life with the freedom and human dignity we all deserve. The resolution targeted Tlaib's public statements about the Israel-Hamas war and accused her of, quote, promoting false narratives regarding the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel and for calling for the destruction of the state of Israel, close quote. Among Tlaib's comments that have caused the most controversy in Congress is her use of the phrase, quote, from the river to the sea, a pro-Palestinian slogan that Israel's supporter, supporters say is anti-Semitic and a call to destroy the state of Israel. Tlaib got more pushback from her colleagues after saying in a post on X, formerly Twitter, that the phrase is, quote, an aspirational call for freedom human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate, close quote. On the House floor, Tlaib emphasized her comments on the war are aimed exclusively at the Israeli government and not Jewish people. She has called for a ceasefire in the conflict as Israel continues its bombing of Gaza, which threatens Palestinian civilians. Quote, my criticism has always been of the Israeli government and President Benjamin Netanyahu's actions, Tlaib said. Quote, speaking up to save lives, Mr. Chair, no matter faith, no matter ethnicity, should not be controversial in this chamber. The cries of Palestinian and Israeli children sound no different to me, she added. What I don't understand is why the cries of Palestinians sounds different to you all. Close quote. Tlaib survived a previous attempt last week by conservative firebrand Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, representative from Georgia, to censor her also over her comments on the war. This article is entitled Space Coast Expects 80 Rocket Launches This Year, reported by Rick Neal for Florida Today. Florida Lieutenant Government Jeanette Nunez predicts the Space Coast will rack up a record-shattering 80 orbital launches by a year's end, with more than 100 launches on tap for 2024. Quote, we are the launch capital of the world. We anticipate this year 80 launches, and next year we have over 101 launches scheduled. Nunez, who chairs the Space Florida board, said during a Monday news conference at the agency's Merritt Island headquarters. Quote, so a lot of launches are happening here, but beyond the launches, we are also leading the way in so many sectors of aerospace, Nunez said. For perspective's sake, rocket activity at the Cape established a then record of 31 annual orbital launches in 2021. That mark got blown away last year when the Space Coast saw 57 launches. 
The night of October the 21st, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket lifting Starlink internet beaming satellites into the low Earth orbit marked the unprecedented 58th orbital liftoff from Brevard County in a single year. That includes Cape Canaveral Space Force Station and Kennedy Space Center. The 60th launch, also a SpaceX Starlink mission, just occurred Friday night. More than seven weeks remain in the calendar year. Quote, within the next decade, it is estimated that the aerospace industry will be a million, multi-million dollar, multi-trillion dollar industry. And Florida is uniquely positioned to be able to capitalize on that major economic driver, Nunez told the media. Quote, so as we continue to work, the Space Florida Board of Directors is committed to seeing that success for the long term, she said. Quote, our partners here at Space Launch Delta 45 and Kennedy Space Center are in a position where we're going to set some records. That's all we have time for today. This is Daphne reading the Cape Cod Times to you. I hope that you have a great weekend, and I look forward to reading to you again soon.